This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This makes me feel like a kid again. I ate peanut butter all the time growing up, like most kids did in the 70s and 80s in America. I had a year of kindergarten in the U.S., so I was familiar with the magic of a PB&J from lunchbox trades. But then I moved back to England, and I didn't have peanut butter again until I was 16. I was babysitting the kid of American expats. They had Jif in their kitchen cupboard, and I ate a spoonful. And oh my God, there I was, standing there in suburban Surrey. It was like Proust and his Madeleines. I was basically five again. Peanut butter apparently goes deep. And as usual, we are going to go deep this episode all about the peanut. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I am Nicola Twilley. And this episode, we're going to find out where the peanut comes from, explore the controversy over who invented peanut butter, as well as investigate the mystery of why so many people are suffering from peanut allergies. And we'll find out how peanuts are also helping save lives by tackling world hunger. No, peanuts are not nuts. They are legumes, so they're more related to, like, soybeans or mung beans or something like that than they are to tree nuts, like almonds or walnuts. So really today, we're talking about the pea bean. That doesn't sound nearly as exciting. Well, we can keep calling it the peanut if that sounds better, sure. But either way, the peanut is an exciting plant. The peanut is about the only plant in the world where it flowers above ground and it fruits below ground. John Krampner wrote the book Creamy and Crunchy, an informal history of peanut butter and all-American food. And Joy Lewis, she was the first person you heard. She's a freelance reporter based in Senegal, and she's working on a book on peanuts and the slave trade. We don't tend to think about peanut flowers, but according to John and Jory, they're beautiful. John described them as almost like orchids with little orange and red streaks. After about a day or so, the flower dies, and what's left is what's called a peg, which turns downward, burrows into the ground, and then produces the peanut underground. And that is just plain weird. Like John says, the peanut is almost the only plant in the world that does this whole flower-then-burrow routine. The peanut is native to northern South America. 
scientists think people have been growing and harvesting peanuts there for about 10,000 years. Peanuts are used to make soap. They've also been used in all sorts of dishes. When peanuts are young, people eat them shell and all, and they're used for peanut juice, a drink that also includes fermented quinoa water. I totally want to try that. You first. But you know, if we're talking about trying traditional peanut recipes from South America, John has a slightly better sounding option. The ancient Incas ground peanuts and mixed it with chocolate. It's, I guess, kind of like their prehistoric form of Nutella or something. Then peanuts spread into Central America as well. But today, people all over the world eat peanuts, peanut butter, peanut oil, peanut sauce. So how did these tiny beans travel around the world? First, of course, the conquistadors showed up in South America. And unlike cacao beans, which, as you might remember from our chocolate episode, were not necessarily a hit with early European invaders, peanuts actually went over pretty well. One of the first recorded sightings was by a priest named Bartolome de las Casas, who traveled to the island of Hispaniola, it's now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, in 1502. He said that they grew this thing that grew underneath the ground and that tasted like a hazelnut. And that's kind of a perception that's repeated quite often by many of the explorers. They kind of find this thing that the Indians grow and that they eat that tastes like a hazelnut. So basically, peanuts were enough like something the Europeans already knew from back home that they embraced it with open mouths. And the peanut had some other important benefits to a seagoing people. When they're dried and roasted, peanuts keep for a really long time, and they're an amazing source of protein, and they're delicious. Which all makes them an amazing food to take on long sea voyages. The Spanish took peanuts west to Asia on uh, galleons that sailed between Acapulco and Manila between 1565 and 1815. The Portuguese took it east to Africa and India from their uh, colony in Brazil. Peanuts became popular basically wherever they went. But in Western Africa, they really caught on because pretty much the only other plant that grows like a peanut with this weird flower above ground, fruit below thing is an African plant called the Bambara groundnut. So Africans would have had experience already growing something similar. They grow the same, but they don't exactly taste the same. You know, like peanuts are kind of almost slightly sweet. The Bambara groundnut doesn't have that. It, It is kind of like eating like a pea or a bean or something like that. Although you do eat them in the same way, like with uh, boiled, with salt, or like roasted. Peanuts have other advantages, not just that they're sweeter and more nut-like, less beany. They have a higher oil content, and peanut plants produce more nuts than Bambara groundnuts do. So peanuts became all the rage in West Africa. And from there, they made their way back across the Atlantic to the United States. Most historians think that they came on slave ships. There have been some scientists who've questioned this hypothesis, right? Like, why wouldn't the peanut have crossed the, like, Rio Grande, you know? Like, it was in Mexico. Like, why not? But I guess the evidence doesn't show much usage by Native Americans. The arguments that peanuts came with the slave ships seems pretty convincing. We already know peanuts were used to provision ships, and the slaves themselves also likely brought the seeds with them because they were growing and eating peanuts in West Africa. You can even trace the West African origins and the different names people have for peanuts in the South. In the South, they for a long time called the peanut the goober, And we know that goober is a derivation of a Congolese word called nguba for probably for the bambara groundnut, right? For something that's like the peanut. Peanuts 
plants really suited the south. The sandy soil there was a perfect home, and the plant, like other legumes, helps enrich the soil. So people grew them, but you wouldn't find them on the dinner plates of the rich families in town. Peanuts were more traditionally thought of as just something that you fed to the hogs, really. They sort of gastronomically, you could say, they were... uh, lower on the social scale. This is actually where the phrase peanut gallery comes from, the cheapest and rowdiest seats. It took multiple wars for peanuts to turn their image around in the U.S. The first was the Civil War. In the Civil War, when the Union blockaded the South, Southerners you know, had to turn more to peanuts as, as a way of uh, just surviving. And in a sense, you could say an early form of peanut butter, they would uh, put peanuts in a bag and shake them around and make what was called peanut porridge. And then as northern soldiers marched through the south, they got to know the peanut. For many, this was their first encounter with our national bean. Just you wait, you will all be calling it the pea bean by the end of this show. Post-Civil War, peanuts got another huge boost when the super-ugly, snouty, ball weevil made its way up from Central America and ate all the southern cotton crop. And so southern uh, farmers had to look for a replacement crop. They turned to peanuts, and then they thought, well, we're not going to really get much money selling all this for hog food. How can we make a more lucrative crop out of them? But the farmers had a problem because the peanuts had an image problem. They also had to, in a sense, engage in a PR campaign of convincing Americans that peanuts were not just this hog food anymore. And so you get an article early in the 20th century where you see a peanut with a uh, top hat and a monocle and spats. And it's like an early forerunner of planters, Mr. Peanut. But this was their way of saying that Peanuts are now a high-class food for people. That little top hat and monocle made all the difference. Not as much difference as grinding the peanuts into a gritty paste, which is what happened next. This new era in peanut history began in the Midwest in the 1890s. And there are two different schools of thought as to who made the first peanut butter. One school says it was John Harvey Kellogg of the Kellogg cereal family. We've talked about John Harvey Kellogg before. He ran a sanitarium in Michigan, and it was filled with lots of weird and not particularly tasty foods, and he loved the peanut. It was an ingredient in his meat substitutes, and he turned it into a paste, kind of like what the Incas did. Unlike the Incas, Kellogg patented his paste. But the Inca chocolate version sounds way better than the healthy Kellogg version. Actually, originally they would kind of roast peanuts, but then they decided that it it made more sense to either uh, steam or or boil them because it was healthier. And it is healthier, but uh, the taste isn't as good, which is why some other people think that really credit for uh, starting peanut butter goes to George Bale. George was a snack food manufacturer in St. Louis. He made potato chips called Saratoga chipped potatoes. He made horseradish sauce. And unlike John Harvey Kellogg, he roasted his peanuts before he turned them into a paste so they actually tasted good. The uh, flavor of peanut butter is the flavor of uh, roasted peanuts. So that's why I'm a George Bale man. To be totally fair here, George's first peanut paste sounds as disgusting as Kellogg's boiled concoction. It was called cheese nut, and just like it sounds, it was a cheese whiz substance flavored with peanut butter. According to an April 1920 article in the Peanut Promoter magazine, cheese nut was quickly dropped. But peanut paste solo? 
that caught on. By 1914, there were already more than 20 peanut butter brands for sale in Kansas. It was a hit in sandwiches. The first peanut butter sandwich recipes in the late 1800s were often more savory. They had mayonnaise, Worcestershire sauce, cayenne pepper, maybe some lettuce or even meat. Personally, I think they sound kind of tasty. Then you take the grapes and you squish them. You squish them for your peanut, peanut butter and jelly. Peanuts didn't meet their life partner, Jelly, until 1901. But it was love at first sight. Then you take the bread and you spread it. You spread it for And then peanut, when sliced bread was invented in the 1920s, well... There was no stopping the PB&J after that. The two world wars gave peanuts a major boost. During the First World War, Americans were told to lay off the meat so that it could be sent to soldiers. And so they turned to peanut butter for protein. But in the Second World War, peanut butter was included in the soldiers' rations. It's high in protein and calories and all sorts of great nutrients. And the soldiers really took a liking to it. Plus, they came back and fed it to their baby boomer kids. And that's when uh, sales of peanut butter really uh, started to skyrocket. Today, Americans eat a lot of peanuts. And roughly two-thirds of the peanuts we eat are in the form of peanut butter. But, and this is somewhat shocking, there is another country that eats more peanut butter per capita than we do. Canada, you win on this one. In Europe, the Dutch are a bit of an anomaly in that they actually eat almost American levels of peanut butter. They call their peanut butter pindakas which is peanut cheese. But not George Bell's Cheese Whiz variety. No, thank God. Although the Dutch do have a soft spot for savory uses. PB and cucumber sandwiches are popular, apparently, as is peanut satay sauce. Maybe a legacy from when Indonesia was a Dutch colony. In India and China, peanuts are popular, but almost exclusively for peanut oil. It has a high temperature frying point, and so it's perfect for stir fries, even better than the oils that were being used before peanut oil, because they were smokier. But with the exception of our friends in the Netherlands and Canada, the U.S. really does have kind of a unique relationship with peanut butter. Americans are, you know, we're kind of impatient. We want things now. And peanut butter is, it's a fast food. You open the jar, you eat it. It's not like, you know, you don't have to have a Japanese tea ceremony or anything. I personally will eat peanut butter on almost anything. No need for any type of ceremony. On apples, on carrots, whatever, it's great. But the rest of the world thinks Americans are pretty weird. As children, we become accustomed to its sticky texture. Whereas in other countries where they don't grow up on it, people who are introduced to peanut butter as adults don't like the sticky texture. Speaking of texture, that's one of the ways that peanut butter has really evolved since George Bale's day. At first, grinding peanuts in the mechanical food mills of the time gave sort of a coarse, grainy texture, a little bit like the texture of grind-it-yourself peanut butter in grocery stores today. And then came hydrogenation. You probably heard about hydrogenated vegetable oils. Basically, hydrogen gas is bubbled into a big tank of oil that has another substance in it, a catalyst, to make the reaction work. Hydrogenation changes the bonds of the atoms in the oil so that it stays more tightly packed, more solid. And that also means it has a higher melting point, so it's solid at room temperature. Here you get the first hydrogenated peanut butter which is Heinz, by the way, in 1923. Adding some partially hydrogenated oil meant that the peanut oil didn't separate and rise to the top of the jar, and so it didn't go rancid, and you could keep peanut butter out of the fridge for longer. Prior to that, most peanut butter brands were local and regional, but with hydrogenation, you you could ship the peanut butter around the country. It would last during shipping. It would last on the store shelves. And so that really helped to uh, fuel the rise of national peanut butter brands. 
And it was the key to the rise of super creamy peanut butter, the kind most people grew up with, the kind that's almost like frosting. Hydrogenation is what makes that texture possible. And we should say here, hydrogenation sounds a little scary, but only 1-2% to of the final jar of peanut butter is this hydrogenated oil, and an even smaller percentage of that contains trans fats. So that's how our peanut butter got super smooth and creamy, but how did it get crunchy? It all goes back to a guy named Jerome Rosefield. His father created Skippy. Jerome Rosefield would uh, travel around the country a lot. He would ask people, how do you like our peanut butter? And if they didn't like it, he would ask why. And the most common response he got was that, well, it's too smooth. And this just disappointed him because we're trying to make our peanut butter as smooth as possible. And here are people complaining it's too smooth. But he goes, all right, if that's what they want. So in 1935, they made some crunchy peanut butter to test out in Salt Lake City. After making the smooth variety, they just threw in some partially ground peanuts as well. It was also a hit. Not as big a hit as smooth peanut butter, but it has its place. 17% of peanut butter buyers prefer the crunch. I am a crunchy girl myself, I must admit. This is how we ended up with the peanut butter textures on the shelf today. We have crunchy or creamy. The first peanut butter wasn't really either one. And those first peanut butters, the taste would have been different too. Because it turns out there's four main varieties of peanut, and they all taste different. Today, nearly all peanut butter comes from one variety. It's called the runner peanut. But in the past, nobody made peanut butter out of runners. It was made from Spanish or Virginia peanuts, which are two other varietals. And the fourth type of peanut is called the Valencia. The Spanish are the little red-skinned ones you see sometimes. They're sweeter and smaller, and today they're mostly used in peanut candy. Virginias are the largest. They're called the cocktail peanut. When you buy jumbo roasted salted peanuts, those are Virginias, and so are the ones you have to crack yourself at the ballpark. There are differences in oil chemistry between the Spanish and Valencia on one hand and the runners and Virginias on the other. That really is what accounts more for the difference in flavor. The Valencias are really the sweetest closely followed by the Spanish, but the Valencias are the most trouble to grow. You you could almost say the most temperamental. So as I said, for all of peanut butter's early history, the manufacturers used mostly Spanish or Virginia or both. Valencia was a pain to grow, and the runner, that was just thought to be a crappy peanut. Until 1970 and the Flow Runner. The Flow Runner was a revolutionary kind of peanut. And the Flow Runner was uh, developed by a peanut grower at the University of Florida. So its name comes from the state of Florida and the fact that it's a, a runner. Now, runners traditionally have not been regarded as tasty as the other varieties of peanuts, but the Flow Runner was tastier than previous uh, runner varieties. It also had the virtue from the point of view of peanut growers of being much more prolific by about 25%. Farmers obviously loved that aspect of the runner, and manufacturers loved that the nut was more uniform so it roasted evenly. But they were nervous. Would peanut butter eaters who were used to Virginia and Spanish nuts would they like the taste of the Flow Runner? Jif tested the waters by adding just 15% Flow Runner into their peanut butter. Nobody noticed. So all the companies started adding more and more until runners became basically the winner in the peanut race. And they still are today. All the major peanut butters, Jif, Skippy, Peter Pan, the self-grind stuff in the store, it's almost all runner. That's the taste we're used to now. 
but the flow runner takeover in the 70s means that if your granddad says peanut butter doesn't taste like it used to, he might have a point. Regardless of what the manufacturers say, I and partisans of the other uh, varieties of, of peanuts feel that it it did change the flavor. It's it's a little blander now. So we decided to test this out. We'd never even considered the fact that there might be variety in peanut butter other than, you know, added sugar or not. I mean, peanuts are just peanuts, right? But it turns out there are a few companies that still use peanuts other than runners. They're hard to find, but they're out there. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you're listening to our show, then you already know how vital good food is to the human experience. Trying something new can be a truly transcendent experience. Years ago, I visited northern Thailand with a friend. We ate such amazing local food there. So when the hotel where we were staying offered, quote, Western breakfast, or what they called Thai breakfast, I thought, sure, Thai breakfast. Basically, it was greens with a kind of savory fish sauce. I loved it, and it changed my life. It made me rethink what I'd prefer to be eating for breakfast. I've eaten a vegetable-forward breakfast nearly every day since then, and every morning I'm reminded of the incredible experience Experiences I had in Thailand. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. So we assembled four peanut butters and two quote-unquote volunteer taste testers, Cynthia's partner Tim and my husband Jeff, Really, they had no choice. This is what you get for living with Gastropod. But they have qualifications in this area. My name is Jeff Mayno, and my relationship to peanut butter, um, I guess you could call me uh, peanut curious. But, I mean, you are peanut experienced, too, at least as a youth, right? Uh, that's true. Yeah, I'm peanut experienced. I, I, if I remember correctly, I ate Skippy. My mom would make me peanut butter sandwiches, not peanut butter and jelly. I, I'm not a big jelly fan. And then... I honestly don't eat peanut butter very often, but I guess when I do, I enjoy the experience. I would like you to describe for me your typical breakfast. <laughs> for as many years as I can remember, it's a piece of toast and peanut butter with honey on top of it. Did anything in particular um, start this uh, breakfast routine? I, you know, I was trying to think about that in advance of this, and I couldn't remember. It's just, it's like the perfect breakfast. You don't have to think about it. It's easy to make, it's really filling, it's really yummy. It's the best breakfast. Our first jar was one we had to order by mail, Cream and Nut Company from Columbus, Ohio. 
they use only Spanish peanuts. Totally taste that Spanish peanut, right? So my dad used to get the bags of Spanish peanuts, and it still had that outer skin on them. They were red. How do you know they were Spanish? Because it said Spanish peanuts on the bag. And this tastes just like that. Crema nut has no added sugar, but Spanish peanuts are known for being naturally super sweet, and you could really taste that. I keep wanting to say, like, floral, but that awareness is not a wine tasting. This is a peanut butter tasting. <laughs> Are you having trouble talking? <laughs> Glues your whole mouth together. That's very sticky. It's quite mild, nutty, quite sweet. It's got a lot, it's honey. It's honey that I'm thinking of. It's kind of got a honeyish note to it. The next one we tried was Valencia. Trader Joe's has an organic Valencia peanut butter. And like the Spanish, it's known to be sweeter and is higher in oil. All right, so I'm looking at it. It's very, very liquidy. Um, in fact, it's kind of, it's actually moving around quite actively inside the jar. When you shake it, it's not like it's alive. Well, I'll be the judge of that. Jeff and I were not fans of this one. Jeff compared the taste to flat Coke. Tim and I actually loved it. Yeah, it's sweeter, and it has, um, I think, like almost like a, like a coffee flavor or something. It's this smoother nuttiness or something. I have to say, I've always loved. The runner peanut, it tastes fine. But now that I'm tasting these other ones, it doesn't taste as good. Am I getting spoiled? <laughs> You're that, that's it. Now we're going to have to get mail-away peanut butter every week. That's terrible. Good thing that Trader Joe's isn't this, so far. You can keep your Valencia. In our house, it's all about the Virginias. That was our third peanut butter, Koozie Cream Nut from Grand Rapids, Michigan. There's definitely a strong peanut taste, and yet it's not sweet. And yet it's also kind of, um, hmm, I don't know, it just tastes, just tastes really good. I like it. What kind of peanut is this again? So this is the Virginia. Go America, man. <laughs> That's exactly the moral of this story. This one wasn't our favorite. It doesn't seem that different for me than the runner. And actually, they're in the same, like, when they're grouped together in the varietals, it's the runner and the Virginia and the Spanish and the Valencia. Look at us. We're like sommeliers of peanut butter. <laughs> That's <totally> true. <laughs> I want that to be a thing, and I want to be the first master peanut sommelier. Now I can close my eyes and blindfold, and first I smell, <laughs> then I taste. I can tell you, this was a Valencia grown at 5,000 feet above sea level. Oh my gosh, Valencias are grown higher above sea level in New Mexico. <laughs> You're not even kidding. That's totally See? true. I'm the peanut whisperer. Tim's been eating peanut butter every morning for breakfast for like a decade, and he is clearly a peanut butter expert. Okay, so the Valencia bit was a good guess, but it really is grown at 4,000 feet in the U.S. This whole thing, even though I felt completely ridiculous doing a peanut butter tasting, it was one of the more surprising taste tests we've done for the show. I really was expecting peanut butter to just be peanut butter. But now I've sold my soul to Virginia peanuts and I can only get my peanut butter in the mail which I'm perfectly aware is about the bougiest thing I've ever said. This is a fun one to test at home, though. And if you go to our website, gastropod.com, we'll have the names of the peanut butters we used. But not all of you will be able to give it a try, because I am betting that some of you listeners either are or live with someone who's allergic to peanuts. So the first medical case that I've come across of a peanut allergy fatality is in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in the late 80s. And then... A couple months later, there's one in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and then there's a few more reported, and it just escalates from there, and it escalates very quickly. Matthew Smith is a professor of health history at the University of Strathclyde and the author of a new book called Another Person's Poison, The History of Food Allergy. 
and he told us that the number of people who are allergic to peanuts has basically doubled in the past 20 years. So we're talking about something that starts in the late 1980s and has continued to increase. Now, that's not to say that there weren't cases of peanut allergy or even fatal reactions to peanut allergy before then. There are a few that you can come across, although hardly any, if, if any at all, in the medical literature. But what you do see is this rapid increase during the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s. So the question is, yeah, if, if people were eating peanut butter and peanut products, Snickers bars and all the rest of it, throughout the uh, 20th century, which they were, what changes in the late 1980s and 1990s and onward to today to explain the uh, increase in peanut allergy. Right. It's weird. People have been reacting to food since, well, as long as we've been eating food. We haven't always called it an allergy. The word allergy goes back to 1906. Uh, Prior to that, we do get discussion of what are called idiosyncrasies, which basically means a strange reaction to something. And that certainly you can get cases of idiosyncrasies to food all the way back to Hippocrates. So, you know, 5th century BC, uh, he talks about cheese being something that uh, gives some men great strength, but others come off badly. And we, we can just imagine what come off badly means. But the thing about these idiosyncrasies or allergies as we know them today, it's hard to get a handle on them. Some data says 60% of Americans suffer from a food allergy. Other people think that number is wildly overblown. It comes down to a fuzziness in how you define an allergy. But an allergic response to peanuts? I mean, anaphylactic shock is not a particularly fuzzy thing. So what happens to many people when they have a peanut allergy reaction is that they go into anaphylaxis, which is the body... in in a way, going into shock. So it sends the immune system into overdrive. So if you think if your body comes in contact with a cold virus, what the body does is triggers all these antibodies to try to attack those cold viruses and and prevent them from entering the body. So you get, you know, phlegmy, mucousy, you start sneezing, all those sorts of things. Those are all defense mechanisms. Well, what anaphylaxis does is it basically does that times 100. So you get swelling uh, in the neck, for example. That's one of the most dangerous symptoms. You also get drops in blood pressure. You tend to get cardiac problems. Your body is just going into overdrive, trying to prevent this peanut protein from entering the bloodstream, essentially. Basically, your body thinks that the peanut protein might be something foreign that it has to get rid of. This is how most food allergies work. There's a protein that your body freaks out over. In terms of what makes the reactions to peanuts more potentially fatal than, say, to other proteins, that's something that scientists are still trying to find out. And that's not the only unanswered question here. The thing in your body that makes it freak out That's a chemical called immunoglobulin E, IgE for short. One of the mysteries was, what was IgE for prior to allergy? In previous centuries, when allergies weren't such a common occurrence, what was this IgE for? And one of the hypotheses, which seems to be fairly well 
substantiated is that IgE was used to fight off parasitic infection. This actually leads to one of the hypotheses for why allergies in general might be on the rise. It's called the hygiene hypothesis. Basically, it's that we live in such a clean environment and our bodies aren't exposed to parasites and other types of infections that might toughen us up. And so that IgE has nothing to do. And so it overreacts to peanuts and to other foods, you know, allergies. But the hygiene hypothesis doesn't answer the question of why peanut allergies in particular are seeing such a stratospheric rise, more so than other allergies. If I was a scientist with the American Allergy Association, you know, the honest answer would be we don't know. Uh, But there certainly have been a lot of hypotheses put forth. One of these hypotheses is that there are more peanut allergies in areas of the world where they, we, roast the peanuts and that maybe roasting affects the peanuts in some way that boiling doesn't and makes them more allergenic. So maybe John Harvey Kellogg was right, but I don't want to eat boiled peanut butter. Matthew said there's another quite controversial hypothesis that's still very much speculation. And that is that um, the idea that uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, have been using peanut oil as an adjuvant in their vaccines for about, well, about the same number of years as as peanut allergy has been a problem. That's something that, given all the the fuss about MMR and, and autism, you know, if you're if you're a respectable science who wants to have a decent career, you're probably not going to go near that one. There's another theory, and it kind of wraps up two ideas in one. It's that there's peanut protein in so many things, peanut butter, peanut flour, peanut oil. It could show up in deli meat, the additives in orange juice, chocolate, everything. What's interesting, or what, what, what I guess is alarming about peanuts, is that uh, they seem to enter the food stream in ways that uh, certainly seafood and maybe not eggs, but other products don't. So Matthew's point is peanut proteins are everywhere in tiny, tiny quantities. And at the same time, the advice to parents is often being to not introduce peanut butter until kids are a little older. So they're getting this low-level background exposure and then not encountering an actual peanut until much later. And the hypothesis is that means your body never learns to deal with the peanut. It just always thinks that peanut protein is a foreign substance that kicks IgE into high gear. Today, the guidelines for when to introduce peanuts has changed. Now, if kids don't seem to be at high risk for food allergies, the recommendation is to feed them peanut butter at about six months. And there's a funny story for one reason why this has been changing. A British scientist was giving a presentation in Israel about the rise of peanut allergies. He asked the hundreds of attendees how many had seen a peanut allergy in the last year, and only like three people raised their hands, while nearly all pediatricians and allergists in the U.S. or the U.K. would have raised their hands. This might be why. Ada, Ina, Bamba. Dad, Mom, Bamba. Kids' earliest words in Israel. Bamba is an Israeli treat that's peanut butter flavored. Everyone loves it. Pretty much all Israeli babies eat it. And so now that British scientist is in charge of a major study looking at whether exposing babies to peanut butter really early, like Israeli style early, whether that will help their bodies learn that peanut protein is not something to freak out about. And his first set of results from just a couple of years ago show that exposing kids who are considered to be at high risk for peanut allergy to peanut butter actually did seem to prevent the kids from developing an allergy. I think it's important to note that whereas some people are in favor of that approach, not everyone is. And I think it, it still begs the question of why Uh, Some people appear to be more susceptible to these allergies than others. 
So while it does seem as if introducing peanut butter earlier will help prevent a lot of people from developing peanut allergies, Matthew isn't convinced that this will stop the incredible and surprising rise of peanut allergies altogether. There's still way too much we don't understand. I think my inclination is that it isn't going to be just one thing. For now, there are still plenty of kids for whom peanuts are deadly. But there are also lots of kids for whom peanuts are a lifesaver. Because they're eating plumpy nut. It's like peanut butter. It's not much different as peanut butter. Martin Bloom is a senior nutrition advisor in the World Food Program, and he's talking about a food he uses in his aid work all the time, plumpy nut. When André Briand, he thought a lot about it, say, you know, what, what do children actually consume? relatively easily. André Briand is a pediatrician in France, and he was trying to solve the problem of getting nutrients into kids who desperately needed them. At the time, they had to go to a hospital if they were suffering from the kind of malnutrition that could kill them. Before Plumpy Nut, the best treatment to get enough nutrients and calories into these kids quickly to save their lives was a product called F100, a therapeutic milk. And while F100 worked well, Treating kids with it had some problems. Milk can spoil very easily. So it's really difficult to keep those products. You have to keep it cool. You have to, you know, the fridges. And in many places where we work, it's very difficult to use those fridges. This just wasn't a good solution. It couldn't help all the kids who needed it. But then Andre noticed a jar of Nutella, which is delicious, but he also thought, hey, it has a great combination of proteins, energy, and fat. This is back in 1996. And Andre figures, why don't I use this idea of Nutella and make a therapeutic nut paste for starving kids? The result was Plumpy Nut, which is just peanut paste, vegetable oil, milk powder, sugar, vitamins, and minerals. Peanuts, as we know, have a high protein content, they have a high fat content, so they have lots of calories, and they're also a great vehicle for all these nutrients. Plus, they taste good. You, you open it, and you just squeeze it out. So it is a, it's, it's an incredible, practical way to use it under the most difficult circumstances. And it works. You give it for a couple of weeks, and then uh, kids recover extremely quickly on peanut butter. They do really, really well was the beginning of a revolution, how we were treating and preventing acute malnutrition in a way which was not possible for the last 40, 50 years. Like, it was an enormous progress. And because it's so much easier to get it into the communities that need it, Plumpy Nut has helped Martin save many, many more children's lives. They are so skinny, they're sick, they have uh, quite often diarrhea, pneumonia sometimes, and and, and so they can hardly take any food in. This is why it's so incredible product, because they can actually consume this product. We are already doing this for 12 years. You know, we serve about 80 million people, including like about 20% children or so. And so, yeah, I, I, we talk about a lot of, a lot, a lot of children. And this is just WFP. So UNICEF also must have millions of kids. And then you have all the NGOs like uh, MSF. And so oh, I think it's a, yeah, that's what I said. It's a revolution. It, it is a, many, many, many children have been saved because of this product. And it's been so successful that they've used the formula to make new products. One is called Plumpy Dose, and it's to help prevent stunting. Stunting affects even more kids, and it's kind of the precursor to the worst kind of malnutrition. And that's, of course, from a, severity perspective maybe not as a big problem as the severe acute malnutrition 
but the number of children who have stunted are so large that if you look at mortality impact, the stunting has even more impact than the severe acute malnutrition. And plumpy dose has made a huge difference there, too. It's something that kids can squeeze into their mouths, they like the taste, and it has a shelf life of two years. So it's just super practical. But it's not all rainbows and life-saving peanut butter pastes. Plumpy Nut has inspired some controversies, too. People say it's expensive, but it's cheaper than the old product, and you don't have to have a hospital nearby. Then there's the fact that Nutriset, the company that Andre Brion partnered with to make Plumpy Nut, it took out a patent on the paste, and it enforced it pretty rigorously at first to stop others from making it. Several NGOs criticized them heavily for that. But Martin thinks it was maybe necessary, especially in the early days. To make a life-saving product, the quality had to be extremely high, of course. And then it was new, and nobody was quite sure it would work. So Nutriset wanted to really control the process to make sure each dose contained just what it was supposed to contain. But even beyond that, there's a business model issue. Because Plumpy Nut might be a miracle product in terms of saving lives, but it's not exactly a high-volume product. The problem of sustainability when you create products like this doesn't work because severe acute malnutrition is relatively a phenomenon which doesn't happen a lot among children. Like, you know, normally it's very high prevalence if you talk about 3% of the children. So to make a sustainable business model is not very easy. But Martin and his colleagues have worked to create some businesses in which a life-saving peanut paste is made locally. One of these successes was in Rwanda in partnership with the Clinton Foundation. Which is a really cool program because they work with companies as well as with local companies, with the government. And it's a business model where we buy 25% of their produce for East Africa. And they try to sell 75% for the local market so that, in fact, a lot of the children from Rwanda can benefit from a good, high-quality products. And they use uh, as the staple products from smallholder farmers who actually get, you know, they buy the produce over there, so you help the farmers on top of it. So this tiny little bean, the pea bean, as I still kind of want to call it, it seems like the most pedestrian food. I mean, lunchboxes, airline snacks, it's everywhere. But it turns out to be quite the super bean. It's traveled all around the world and back. It's been key in agriculture in the South and the U.S. It's helped save lives, and it's also triggered medical mysteries. But I really wanted to leave you with perhaps the weirdest sandwich that it stars in, in John's book-length ode to peanut butter. A sandwich that he is proud to say he created himself. John calls it the Simon and Garfunkel because, of course, it contains parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. It's a whole wheat bagel spread with peanut butter. John then adds mozzarella cheese, a slice of tomato, sautéed spinach and mushrooms with a clove of garlic, a bunch of spices, and then he squeezes some lemon on top. And that's it for today's show. Are you creamy or crunchy? And will you try John's Insane Sandwich? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Jory Lewis, John Crampner, Matthew Smith, Martin Bloom, and a special shout-out to Owen Guo for helping us with our Mandarin pronunciation. And, of course, thanks to our long-suffering partners, Jeff and Tim. Okay, I don't think this one was too much of a hardship assignment. There have been worse. We are back on August 1st after a teeny tiny little break where we'll be out reporting lots of new stories. Stay tuned and stay in touch. All our deets are at gastropod.com along with links to all of our guests' books. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express Card. 
you, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food, you're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. 